I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. A total roller coaster, like failing to to build the tech platform, wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars of our own money, failing to fundraise. As a co-founder, you're all in on something, and every one of those things you take personally. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we'll get the real story of how Thrive Market came to be from co-founder and CEO Nick Green. Thrive Market is a membership-based service that delivers organic food brands to customers at wholesale prices and also sponsors free memberships for low-income American families. And Nick believes that Thrive is perfectly placed for a future where humanity cares a lot more about themselves and each other. More and more people are recognizing that, like, our planet's in peril. Um, there's going to be, over the next five to ten years, tens of millions of people that are going to come online and say, we want to vote with our dollars. And that's where Thrive's going to live. Find out why Nick regrets not having co-founders sooner, what he learned from his previous entrepreneurial ventures, and why he credits Los Angeles for keeping him sane. Unfinished Biz starts now. Robin, get ready for this one. I think Nick Green's going to be a really exciting one coming up. I mean, he's got a pretty big idea of disrupting how consumers get high-quality organic food and beverage products. And... Uh, you know, historically, the model has been to, to, for these consumers to buy it at Whole Foods Market and walk into a physical store to purchase it. But what if you can get those directly to your home? Maybe some someone like Nick could come up with that. I know the Thrive Market story isn't one that was super straightforward. Uh, you know, people heard about this idea and it wasn't like everybody jumped on immediately. They actually had to build the rocket ship, fly the rocket ship, and then people got on. Nick sat down with us at our VMG offices in LA to tell us the story. I went to uh, high school in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, public high school. I was your kind of classic straight A, type A, uh, you know, everything A sort of student. Um, you know, uh, including anal retentive, uh, just like, <laughs> n- like neurotic, intense, uh, and very focused. Uh, I actually thought I was going to be a lawyer. My big extracurricular in high school was debate. Uh, I was one of the top ranked, uh, national circuit debaters nice. traveling all over the country. Um, so I thought I had a future as a trial lawyer, uh, went off to Harvard, uh, didn't want to get a job my summer, uh, summer after freshman year. Uh, and I had done well in the SAT, was from a place that people didn't really do test prep because they couldn't afford you know, $1,000 Princeton Review classes, uh, and decided to teach SAT classes. Uh, I didn't think about it as entrepreneurial. I didn't think about it as starting a business. I thought about it as making some money, uh, sort of pleasing, pleasing my mom to do, to do something, mm-hmm. um, and you know, resting and recharging after a pretty tough freshman year. Uh, and I think I worked with about 400 kids that first summer. How did you advertise? Uh, like, how did you find these kids? I, I literally went back to my high school teachers and gave presentations in their classrooms. This oh, is like wow. totally unorthodox and probably, <laughs> probably illegal. Uh, it's a gray area. You're fine. <laughs> you know, I, had to, I had to push the boundary. That was your first uh, foray into direct marketing. Right. First but not last. Um, <laughs> so we, yeah, I, I gave these presentations and then I actually did, I think it was like just practice tests that I hosted on the weekends uh, in classes that I didn't rent out. Um, you know, just like went to an empty classroom in the high school, which was open on the weekend. Uh, and, uh, you know, brought kids through, saw, they, they saw what they could get on the test in their first try. Um, I had actually not really done a lot of prep for the SAT myself. Again, I was in a community where 
you know, maybe a few people took classes, but for the most part, like the idea of tutoring wasn't, if it was available, it wasn't, it was sort of remedial if you really needed help, but wasn't, wasn't something most people were doing. Um, and, and so it was actually a really interesting experience for me because I, I had to create a curriculum Mm -hmm. once I had all these students, I ended up writing a book that summer that I called the, the Ivy insider's guide to the SAT. Oh, wow. Uh, trademark later became the actually did. It became the name for the company, Ivy insiders. It's um, a great name for an SAT prep company. It was it was a good name, and uh, and you know, fast forward another couple of years, I did that uh, three summers, and then realized I basically had a little business in a box that could easily be replicated by you know how many more Harvard undergrads. Right. Um, and so I, uh, the following year, actually hired a bunch of other uh, kids from Harvard to go back to their hometowns and do the same thing. Um, you know, fast forward another year, and I went to the rest of the Ivies and did the same thing. So. Uh, over the course of about four years, we built that business into about 800 branches, sort of these like summer wow. micro franchises. That's incredible. What did you, um, you get the revenue up to? Uh, it was mid seven figures. Wow. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah. So, you know. And highly profitable. Zero outside funding, yeah. highly profitable. Uh, and, you know, it was interesting because I didn't start it with a mission necessarily. Uh, but as we as we got going... I think the most satisfying thing to me was seeing kids, you know, we had average score improvements between 200 and 300 points. You changed working, lives. Working with kids that wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity. A lot of kids that were very smart but not good natural test takers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was really, I think, inspiring for the students to work with someone who had recently taken the test themselves, beaten it, gone to a great college, and yet you meet them and you're like, this is a normal person. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So it was, sort of, it was as much inspiration and mentorship as it was actual content. Um, and, you know, really defanged the test, you know, away from this like measure of your academic readiness or your intelligence or whatever. So what happened towards, with the company? Towards a game. Uh, and uh, we ended up getting bought. Not, so who, so who acquired it? We got acquired by a company called Revolution Prep. Okay. Um, but the reason I talk about the, the mission and kind of that satisfaction is that that ultimately is what led to right. my next business because, um, you know, it was like great to have a highly profitable business. It was, uh, you know, obviously not a... Not a not a monster home run, but for me personally, a life changing financial outcome. But you know, as I like, there was two things that I kind of figured out after uh, during my earnout, my indentured servitude, <laughs> uh, had a lot of time to reflect. Um, in, in between trying to integrate the companies, was a whole nother uh, kind of story. How many years was the transition? As a year and a half. Okay. Um, but w- what did the business look like? Was it because it sounded like you had you know multiple teachers? But what was the structure of the actual business itself? Did you have a CFO? Did you have I had an inter. I had a. I had a corporate team of about fifteen. Okay. Um, at peak, right? So that was in the summer, and we had, and probably in this in the school year, it flexed down to eight to ten. Got based it. in Minneapolis, um, or no? Based in in uh, Cambridge. Okay. okay. Um, and uh, you know that team was writing curricula. Uh, we eventually moved into a bunch of other tests. Uh, we started using our summer branches to basically seed. Um, uh, year-round prep uh, that was online. So we would take these these undergrads, we'd hire them actually as branch managers. And the value proposition to them was, hey, instead of getting an internship and shuffling papers and fetching coffee, go start your own business. And we'll give you the capital. We'll give you the kind of business in a box, so to speak. We'll give you the curriculum. Uh, we'll train you. We mm-hmm. did you know, these like full-day sessions across all the Ivy League campuses. Um, and like I said, we scaled it up to about 800 uh, undergrads each summer. I think in total we worked with 25,000 plus students. Um, And again, the most satisfying thing to me was like, you know, we had a little team, no CFO, no CEO. It was just like, it was all self-funded. It was all hustle. I didn't know what I was doing, uh, truthfully. Uh, and I look back and uh, the, the, I say it all the time, like I failed my way to success. 
right? It was just like one mistake after the other, like bad hires, like poor capital allocation, uh, you know, just just like big investments in technology that didn't play out as we tried to shift the business online. Uh, but we had the benefit of a high margin business that was mm-hmm. services based that scaled really well because of the direct sales model. Um, and what I ended up loving about the business because it was actually a, kind of a pain in the ass to run. Like it was a it was like that like. Uh, like many-legged, tentacle, right, crazy right. animal, right? Yeah. Um, and not scalable in the way of technology or software businesses. But what was amazing about it is we were changing lives. We were reaching people that didn't have access to test prep prior and getting into better colleges. And then for the uh, you know for the undergrads, they were actually getting to go be entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So I fell in love with entrepreneurship, and I yeah. fell in love with impact. And um, you know, in my year and a half of kind of figuring out what to do next, it was, you know, those were sort of the two, uh, two criteria for me is like, I knew despite financially not, not needing to go take another swing, I was doing some angel investing and that was great, but I knew I wanted to be in the trenches again right. as an entrepreneur. And then I knew that I wanted to do it in, in, in something that was really going to have an impact. Did you, during this time, did you have a partner or anything or was this sort of, you were oh, oh. solo? Good call. The other, <laughs> the other thing I learned, I was solo, okay. uh, which, uh, you know, I talked about failing my way to success. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made so many mistakes that I think would have been avoidable had I had just someone else in the room to bounce ideas off of. Like I was so in my own head. I, I knew I didn't know what I was doing. You know, it was like when you're, it's one thing to be bad and like sort of be una- blissfully unaware. <laughs> right. It's the other yeah. to like really know right. you don't have any idea. You know, it's right. like people are like, well, didn't you, you studied business at Harvard? I was like, no, I studied economics. <laughs> yeah, Big difference. Like, like very different things. I wasn't even allowed on the business school campus, right? right. Like I was like doing econ- econometrics and multi like just like totally uh, irrelevant stuff. Um, and yeah, I think like the, the third thing I guess I would say coming out of that experience was I wanted to work with partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had seen just the mistakes that I had made being in my own head. Uh, I knew I needed other perspectives and I knew, and, and I knew I, it was also more fun when you're working with people. Yeah. Right? Um, so, you know, the, the current business thrive market, um, actually came, I, I rolled off my urn out and I was an entrepreneur residence at a startup accelerator here in, here in LA. Uh, how'd you end up in LA? Uh, that was where the urn out was. So oh, the company, yeah, that, the, com- okay, com- the company that bought us was revolution prep. Yeah. And I guess the story there is my then girlfriend, now wife was in grad school in Boston. So I came out here fully expecting I was going to do my time and head back. Yep. Um, I actually had a great experience at revolution. They're a super cool mission driven company, learned a ton, uh, working in a more scaled business that was still quite entrepreneurial. Um, but I had every intention to return, but got to LA and I, like I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, <laughs> the, uh, three months that are nice and, and three months that are like, so when you're here, we're going to freeze. Good, all right? Right. Uh, and you know, walking out my door on ocean Avenue, seeing palm trees, right. it was like, you know, pinch myself every day. Like I feel like I'm on vacation. Um, and so, you know, I think six months in or so I called my, my, my wife and said, eh, what do you think about writing your dissertation out here? Like, how about, how about we, how about we make the move? And like, there's a lot more natural light here, you know? I know. I was like, <laughs> I, I remember thinking about my pitch there. That was harder than pitching any investor. Yeah. I can tell you that. The inspiration you'll have here. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, but truthfully I did, I did feel inspired getting to LA. Um, and it was interesting for, uh, for a few reasons. One is there was this emerging kind of like tech Silicon beach thing that was just starting to happen. Um, that was, you know, this was 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing a little angel investing. I went to the startup accelerator launch pad, launch LA, um, that a friend of mine, um, Sam Teller was the, was, was managing. Um, and I started just getting involved in the ecosystem and that was super energizing and Cambridge. There's a different kind of tech world in Boston, but it wasn't, it wasn't consumer, 
uh, it wasn't it wasn't quite as dynamic as what I was finding here. And plus, I was so heads down there with the first business. Um, and then I think the uh, the ability to be outdoors, like for someone who is like you know, despite becoming an entrepreneur and like taking on risk and like forsaking my my legal future, <laughs> uh, I'm still pretty Type A. Like mm-hmm. I'm still like I work really hard. I'm pretty uh, pretty intense. I think a place like you know Cambridge or especially a place like New York or even San Francisco like could really spin me up. Mm-hmm. LA has a great lifestyle, and first it's almost like. You know, people think about like a, a laid back surfer dude living living in Southern California, right. but it's actually better for you if you're not that type of person because it at least forces you to balance out a little right. bit. And you know that was certainly a great experience for me during that period, and I think it's been a great kind of balancing factor um, even on the on the second business. And you know I had zero balance on the first business, I have a little bit more <laughs> now, and and I credit it all to being Los Angeles. So uh, how did this how did this new venture get started? And yeah. Where did the idea come from? So the idea came from my co-founder, uh, Gennar, um, one of my two co-founders. Um, and uh, he actually pitched me. I was at Launchpad. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd probably seen 500 pitches over the course of, of six or seven months. I think I made six or seven investments. Were you guys already friends or you met through this didn't, pitch? Didn't know him at all. Okay. We got introduced through a mutual friend. Uh, he pitched me over the phone. Uh, he, uh, uh, so Gunnar grew up in Ojai, California on a hippie commune uh, <laughs> and he'll, 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 <laughs> it wasn't called a hippie commune, but he'll describe right. it that exact same yep. way. It was a hippie commune. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, he, uh, was actually at a tapping convention, uh, in, oh, in Italy. Uh, so tapping is this modality of stress relief where you sort of tap on different pressure points in the body. Okay. Um, I haven't actually done it, but, <laughs> but my mom who's into a lot of new age, interesting right. stuff had, and so I'd heard of it. Um, and so that, that was like his, fir- the first strike against him was he's at a tapping convention. <laughs> right. He's like, but I can get on a phone call. Um, anyway, I'd seen 500 plus pitches right. and, uh, he pitched me on, uh, the, an idea called shop drive. And the idea was to, to basically build, uh, buying events for healthy food, uh, to make them affordable to, to anyone. And the idea actually came when he was, uh, going to burning man he did these events on Facebook where he would get a wholesale account for a uh, product or brand that he really liked. Uh, he'd put it up on Facebook to his friends. They'd all pitch in. They'd buy at wholesale, get 25 to 50% right. off, basically get the organic product at or below the price of conventional equivalents mm-hmm. uh, and bring all their shit up to Burning Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and he, and he, there were, there were, these events were so successful. And you know, th- this is sort of around the time that like Groupon, Groupon and all that stuff was happening. He's like, we should do that yeah. for healthy food. Um, rather than just you know kind of fa- you know fashion fashion items and things like that, um, and uh, and I was like I don't know about that the model like I don't know how well that translates. Do people really want to get their groceries like with a two or three week delay on an event? Like how do we make it consistent? And, and so we had that conversation, but we got you know, we got tons of macaroni and cheese today, everybody. We <laughs> exactly bought up, we bought up a whole year's supply. Come get it. Exactly. I mean, if there's one place where you want a stable catalog. <laughs> it's probably the grocery store, right? Um, but the the mission just captivated me uh, because of the, what I was describing before. Like I knew I wanted to do something on impact. My first business was was on education. Um, health is something that was really uh, near and dear to me personally. Um, you know, growing up in, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, it's you know middle of the country, a place where people aren't necessarily eating the best eating the best diet. Certainly, we're not when I was growing up. Um, and I had that like weird mom on the block who was actually making sure we didn't have sugared cereal and, you know, and was, like she knew what aspartame was and no diet soda. Right. 
Um, and, uh, and it, you know, she was, she, my, my mother's Mexican American and she grew up in Denver, Colorado and seeing, uh, you know, in, in her community and her, her family, some of the health outcomes, particularly with type two diabetes, uh, versus, you know, us similar genetics, uh, same genetics, uh, that, that didn't have any of those, those lifestyle diseases. And I credit my mom for doing that. Um, and knew the scale of the problem, had experienced it firsthand. And if there's one thing more fundamental than education, it's health. So as Gennar is talking about this mission to make healthy living affordable and accessible to anybody through these buying events, I'm like, I'm not even thinking about the buying events or the business mm-hmm. model. I right. was just captivated with the idea. And, you know, he is a um, uh, very different from me, right? Like I grew up in middle class Minnesota, went to Harvard, he grew up in a hippie commune in Ojai, California. Going to didn't, tapping conferences. Didn't, didn't graduate from <laughs> dropped out of college to, you know, to start his first business. Um, so he is risk-loving. I am risk-averse. He is type B. I am type A. Um, but, you know, as I thought about a partner to work with, it's like immediately we connected on the mission. And then immediately it was clear there was going to be some real complementarity. So I think by the end of that meeting, I was pitching him on doing it together. That's interesting. Um, and, you know, we had a few more more calls before he came back. I think he, he came... We, we had in Santa Monica where I was living at the time. I went up to Ohio a few times, and over the course of a few months, we iterated on the model and ultimately landed on what became Thrive Market. Where did the third partner come in? So the third partner came in, uh, in a, a few months later, uh, and it was uh, sort of uh, you know, necessity being the mother of invention or whatever they say. Right. Mm-hmm. For us, it was like necessity being the mother of a third co-founder. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we paid an outside consulting firm $150,000. We capitalized the business all with our own capital initially um, and uh, had, had spent probably 150000 on the tech build. Um, and we were, we thought, four weeks away from launching when we found out that basically it was all vaporware. Like nothing actually worked. Uh, pages didn't load. We did, oh, so you know, so your, stuff, your background's not in... in- it's of, not in tech. Not in no. tech, and, and neither I, is. And his. I should have look. I should have known, right? I told you in my first business, we I wasted hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to build. You know, in that business, I was trying to build onla- an online tutoring platform and actually develop hardware so that you could. At, at the time, like there wasn't good touchscreen tablet mm-hmm. interfaces, so we, we were trying to actually use a camera on a flexible pole that you would put over yourself writing on paper, if you can imagine. Huh. Like, this isn't that long ago. Right? Yeah. It feels like the yeah. dark, like, the dark <laughs> ages now. <laughs> right. This is 10 years ago. Right. Um, and uh, so, you know, I clearly should have known at that point I did not have a talent for product development and, and you know, uh, UX and, and, and tech. Um, but, of course, didn't learn that lesson. We tried to, to, tried to outsource it. Um, and, uh, and it was a complete, complete debacle. So we had actually went to uh, Sam, the, the guy who ran Launchpad LA, my good buddy, uh, who's very plugged in in the LA tech ecosystem. Um, and we said, who's, who's the best like uh, early stage CTO out mm-hmm. there? Um, he's like, we're like, we wanted to jump from one end of the guard. Right. <laughs> right. We have no CTO. We want the best. Right. Uh, we knew we needed to get something fast. We knew we'd already poured hundreds of thousands of dollars of our own money into it. Uh, we wanted to go out and fundraise. Um, and, uh, he said, Sasha Siddhartha, and he's actually, his business just merged with another company. I think he's going to be rolling off pretty soon. Talk to him. Um, at the time we were working out of a, um, uh, a church, the rectory of a church, uh, a Hare Krishna church how did uh, that in even, Venice, in Venice, California. How did uh, you find that? Or how, how did that even come about? Long story, long, long, long story. <laughs> okay. But the, you know, it was like, uh, there was a parrot 
out on our front doorstep, there was a uh, a stray dog that would like stay in the office. We had no locks on the doors. Like it was like did straight have, out of a movie. Did you have the church exclusively for your business, or was no, it also the church an was a church? It was an active church for like it was called Full Circle Church. Right. Uh, there was you know various events uh, that they would do. It was like a very alternative church. Yeah. Um, and we were in the back room. Um, I mean, it was just nuts. So it was like uh, WeWork, uh, you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. Like amazing culture, good experience, right, exactly. beer on tap. There you go. Uh, we did. We did have a crackhead outside the outside the door that was like <laughs> you know, regularly uh, other other side of the office. <laughs> oh, wow. But yeah, uh, it was, I mean, it was, there were you know, Venice is so interesting, right? right? Because you have these like expensive homes that are like less than a block away from Venice Skid right. Row, and it's actually very sad. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we were kind of in the midst. We were on, on Rose and Hamilton, which right. if, for people that know the area, you know, like five to seven years ago, you wouldn't have wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. Now it's like this bustling. There's, right. there's you know, be- beautiful uh, eco apartments there, great restaurants. It's, and so we were we were like on the older side of, of, of that um, in this church. Um, anyway, uh, Sasha basically like came by. I told him to meet me across the street at this cafe. He actually came to the church. He saw where we were working. I'm sure he was totally spooked. Uh, you know, <laughs> shortly thereafter, he said, Sorry, like, maybe I'll make, write a small check and invest, but really isn't the right fit for me. And uh, I, I think I ended up meeting with him two or three more times, sort of like edging him around. And then finally, at one point, we kind of locked him in a room. We're like, we're going to hire you. What's it going to take? And, um, you know, I think uh, we probably brought him in at two to three times the equity stake of uh, of a CTO at that stage, you know, given Gennar's and my experience and the amount of capital we'd already put in. Um, and I remember talking to advisors who said, it, that's crazy. It's totally off market. Um, but the truth is, but you got that's, to what, do it. that's what it that's what it took. And it was uh, one. I was going to say one of it was the best decision that we've made in were, the business. Out of curiosity, were you talking to anybody else? Did you have, was there a backup plan if it wasn't going to be him? It is so rare to find someone that has, in this case, the deep technical acumen. He also had e-commerce experience, mm-hmm. um, and then he also was just a great guy, and we knew that right away. And you know, I had again, I, could, I made a gut decision with Gennar that like this is a guy I want to work with. I mm-hmm. love his vision, um, and I know that we're going to complement one another. And you know, I think. All, all, both of us, after spending a little bit of time with Sasha, were like, "This is the third leg of the stool." Um, and even though he said no, we're just not we're not going to accept that. Um, and you know, we've had a number of sort of things like that that have happened in the business. And every you know, the the best decisions that we've made that have, have had the most upside and the most kind of like kind of outsized in, in impact have always been from the gut. They've always been high risk. They've always defied some sort of conventional wisdom. You have to do that, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to have a, you're gonna have a two sigma or three sigma outcome, you've got to be making, you got to be thinking off of the curve, and um, and that was definitely one of them. And you know, we were fortunate. Like those those kinds of decisions can obviously backfire too. We were fortunate that we had a few that went right early, that then got us in that mentality of, of being willing to think big, being willing right. to take risk, and then just you know, like being tenacious when we had to when we had to get something done. And and in you know, in Sasha's case. What I didn't say is we had uh, we had already started to have some conversations on the fundraising side, and uh, they hadn't been successful. So getting Sasha in, it was not only key to build the technology platform right. and get us to launch. Mm-hmm. It was also key to you credibility. Know, to, well, credibility to go out and raise yeah. at a time when Gennar and I were already deep into this and sort mm-hmm. of you know wondering how are we going to go forward. So, from the time that Gennar pitched you. What was the business model that you guys were out there pitching other investors? What, 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 what did you guys land on? 
So we landed on basically what the what the core of the business okay. is today, which is. Um, yeah, I think when when we launched, there was an article in Well and Good that 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 described us as if uh, if Whole Foods and Costco had a baby, it would be Thrive Market. So we're it's a sixty dollar annual membership club, uh, and it gives our members access to the best, the highest quality natural organic products on the market, the things that you'd find in a health health food retailer like Whole Foods, uh, but at twenty five to fifty percent off. So you pay the membership, mm-hmm. you get the products at wholesale price. The goal is again to get the organic, natural, healthy product at or below the price of conventional equivalent. Yep. And the mission is that if we do that and we ship anywhere in the country for free, we should be able to access health food deserts. We should be able to get people who actually do want to start ad- adopting this lifestyle but can't afford it or aren't near near a place to to, to get to it. Um, and we should be able to make healthy living affordable and accessible to anyone. So that was that was. It followed directly from the mission. The uh, sort of adjustment was we had we layered the membership on, and then we made it a stable catalog. Uh, and we when we started studying Costco really really closely, right? Like Costco is the gold standard on the on the wholesale uh, uh, you know, wholesale buying club model. And so it wasn't just the the membership; it was also curation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we we basically brought on about five hundred brands initially. It was about thirty five hundred SKUs. You know, to compare that, like Whole Foods in the categories we cover has forty thousand right. SKUs. Um, so, you know, and, and also in context, what do you? Ha- how many do you have today? Uh, we got about six thousand. Okay, and I don't think we'll ever go over ten thousand in yeah. the categories we currently cover. And when you were pitching, did you have the name down? Was it Thrive Market? We call, we were still calling it Shop Drive. Okay, huh. yeah, we were still calling it Shop Drive. Um, and so it it uh, uh, which you know we didn't have the the brand dialed either, um, and. Um, and I think that was, that was part of the problem. Part of the problem was that neither Gennar nor I had e-commerce experience. Part of the problem was that we didn't have a technical co-founder. Uh, part of the problem was we were, we were arguably <laughs> coming into a space against Whole Foods, right. which is a giant incumbent, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think that, you know, and then part of the problem candidly was we were pitching uh, old white guys who don't do their own grocery shopping, live in places like San Francisco and New York and, and Los Angeles, and weren't the ones experiencing the problem we were trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I tend to think that's actually a huge issue with, with VC in general is we're solving problems for like millennial yuppies in right. you know, dense urban areas with a lot of disposable income. And there's huge market opportunities for, you know, for services and products that target middle-class middle America. For sure. Um, but you got, but how do you understand those problems? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I was fortunate to grow up in, in one of those areas where, you know, I knew that, that that there was a problem there, um, and as Gennar and I started talk, like actually talking to partners and things, which mostly were going to be health and wellness influencers, it was so fascinating to hear about their audiences. These are like bloggers, YouTube stars, Instagrammers, and you know they're not they don't over index for LA and New York and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of the bloggers themselves that we were talking to were were from you know rural Mississippi. Like our biggest blogger was from Kentucky, uh, a mother of four. Uh, you know, is in rural Kentucky. Uh, she's got a blog called Wellness Mama. She gets seven million unique visitors every month. Um, and so we uh, ultimately, this was another kind of like turning point for the business. We brought on Sasha. Uh, we still couldn't raise money from VCs. We probably got rejected by fifty VCs. Um, and what we, year was this, by the way? This is twenty fourteen. Okay. Uh, we we ended up raising our money from those influencer partners. How oh, much wow. did you guys raise? Uh, in that first round, it was a little over a million. Okay. Um, and, and how did you connect with all these different influencers? So that was pretty fortuitous, actually. Uh, I had a, a buddy from college who uh, who wrote a book uh, called The Paleo Manifesto. His name is John Durant. 
Um, he's sort of a meta influencer in the paleo world, very well respected, knows all of these like, you know, Mark Sisson and Dr. Right. Mark Hyman and, and wellness mama and all these others. And, uh, John was out in LA for something. He was sleeping on my couch for, for a week. And I think the last day he was there, he's like, so what are you working on these days? I was like, oh, it's this thing called shop tribe. <laughs> yeah. We're trying to do this. And he's like, oh, I, I probably have some people that could be interested in yeah. helping. Oh, wow. And first it was just having these conversations about promotion. Right. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do tons of stuff to, w- together. Just wait till we get our, our fundraising. Right. Yeah. Right. And then we're going to get launched. And we were sort of like, you know, in the, in the back of our head, we're like, God, we, you know, we're having trouble getting the platform ready. We're having trouble fundraising. Like we have all these great influencers, but we're never even going to get to the starting line. Um, and then ultimately they were the ones that helped us get to the starting line. So then when you actually got to a million dollars, how many people was that actually across? I mean, we had people writing five to $10,000 checks in some cases. Gotcha. So we, I bet we had 30 people in that round Mm -hmm. to get to a million bucks, um, anywhere from five to a $50,000 check. Um, you know, no institutional participation. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and ultimately it was the best thing that ever happened to us. Right, so, because it, it baked in the people that actually were the ones that promoted us initially. Right. So rather than going, when we finally did get launched, and mm-hmm. Sasha, to his credit, did exactly what we hoped he would do, which is he built a best-in-class e-commerce platform on a scalable uh, uh, backbone in 12 weeks. Wow. Um, when we finally got launched in the fall of 2014, you know, we had all of our firepower there for the promotion. Right. Um, we didn't spend a dime on paid media for the first six to nine months. Mm-hmm. And this was all in the million, initial million dollars. That it was all in first. the initial. It was like, I think it was one, and then we opened up a little convertible note. Right. So I think we ended up with 1.5. So, and then who came up with the name? Uh, so, n- or the name another for, Another fortuitous story. So there's a, there was a, we had a fourth co-founder, uh, Kate Mulling, uh, who uh, had been at Refinery29. Uh, she had founded the Chalkboard magazine, which oh, was yeah. a, a yeah. content platform for, for press juicery. Um, brilliant uh, brand brand marketing mind and content mind, um, and she was our VP of content. Uh, she's since since left the company. She's not full time anymore. She's still advi- an advisor, uh, but she came in at the exact right moment. And she's like, "Shop Tribe sucks, guys." <laughs> and, and I remember there was like it was like a two week conversation before we sort of like. Maybe you know. Maybe she's right. At first, you were like, "How dare you!" Like at I, first, I, yeah. <laughs> at first, it was like this was like the religion of our yeah, business, right. right? And and like we're like we're not our target market either, right? Like we're two dudes, right? And Shop Tribe seemed pretty cool to us, right. and um, yeah. And she's she's like, "No, that's not. It's not aspirational. It's not elevated. Like mm-hmm. this is actually a lifestyle, mm-hmm. and our and our customers are going to be women. They're going to be head of household who are buying uh, buying for their families." Um, and she was totally right. You know, where it's ninety five percent female. The Thrive brand is totally aspirational, elevated. Um, we ended up raising all the money as Shop Drive. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our male VC, you know, not male VCs, but like male uh, angel investors, didn't like the change away from Shop Drive. <laughs> all of our influencers were like, "Yeah, this is amazing, yeah, amazing." Right. Yeah, um, and and so yeah, I think like the, the combination of repositioning the like over the course of basically three months, we repositioned the brand. We uh, built the built the technology by bringing in someone like Sasha. We brought in all the influencers, and we went from like, oh, shit, we just raised, each wasted $200,000 of our own money. What are we going to do? And like, this is a humbling learning experience to, all right, like, lo- we're locked and loaded. Let's see what happens. Sorry, and, so how much time elapsed at that point when you went from, oh, man, this is not going to work to we're on to something here? So our low point was probably April of 2014. Mm-hmm. We launched in November of 2014. It was that fast. It oh, was wow. like everything going wrong right. to right. all of a sudden, like, 
boom, we hired so Sasha. Sasha was a big turning point. It was obviously. a turning point for us. It was a total turning point. How did you figure out the supply chain dynamic to get get to get the company launched? Because obviously at the front end with Sasha, but how did you figure out how to procure natural products? It's a good question. So again, it came down to another person, um, and uh, like. I know this is good. This doesn't make us seem very, uh, very capable. Like everything sort of <laughs> happened by luck and chance. But truthfully, uh, that one was another really fortunate uh, introduction to our current head of our private label program. Then was actually ran all of our merchandising. His name is Jeremiah McKelvey. Yep. Uh, he ran Health and Beauty for Whole Foods, a billion and a half dollar division. He'd actually been the brand manager for Whole Foods 365, the mm-hmm. private label program. Uh, and he'd been in the natural and organic space for, for 25 years. So he had just rolled off of Whole Foods less than a year ago. And we got introduced to him through someone else um, and I think talked to him about consulting. And he is a, he's a true believer in the space. He cares about access. He's a, just a mission-driven dude and one of the, one of the greatest people I know. Uh, and also brilliant about, his, about, about merchandising. Um, we had no business hiring him. Um, I think we brought him on for a consultant. And within a few months, he was saying, I'm, I'm really down for this. Yeah. Like, I know you guys can't pay me. I know it's going to be, you know, we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and he merchandised the entire catalog. And was, first, yeah. When, when he was starting as a consultant, was this, he was in Austin? He's in Austin. He's still in Austin. Oh, okay. So he's uh, like, you know, we've been flexible with him. He has, he has four daughters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, works out of a home office. He's in, he's in LA, uh, one week out of the year or sorry, one week out of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, again, it was like getting the right person in the right role. Uh, he did things that, you know, Gennar and I could never have done in a million years. Um, and he had relationships in the industry. You know, one of the challenges going out to the brands initially was how do we convince them right. to sell on our platform For at the sure. low map? And, and some weren't, would not agree initially and came back afterwards when they saw the volumes they could do. Um, but what was really cool is, you know, Jeremiah represents kind of the best of this industry, which is people that truly care. Like they, they live the values, they, they, um, and they built their lives around the, around the values for many, many years. So he was able to speak to that authentic kind of mission that a lot of these brands actually share. Mm-hmm. And what was so heartening was to see that those brands actually came out and, you know, like the influencers and unlike the VCs, they just got it. Right. You right. Know, they just, they like saw the mission, the connection to someone as authentic as Jeremiah and, you know, with the influencers, what ultimately happened, just to circle back, is like we got four or five of these people through John. The signal value of that tipped the whole For thing sure. and the dominoes started falling. Same thing happened on the brand side. Jeremiah brought in the first few, tipped the dominoes, and they started falling. So, And were these brands shipping directly to Thrive or were you pulling through a distributor? In some cases, we went through a distributor. In some cases, we went direct. It just depended on where we were going to have enough volume and what their minimums were. But you started um, still a brand-centric model where you're trying to get the brand to – to bet on Thrive as opposed to a distributor catalog and saying, hey, give me these Absolutely. hundreds and, of SKUs. And the truth is if we had just gone straight through a distributor with no relationship with the brand, the pricing wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. Right. Even with our membership to get the pricing where we needed it to be right. uh, and not just be hemorrhaging cash, we had to negotiate special EDLPs and rebates and discounts with the brands and get them to, to really bet on you guys are going to access a new, tar- a new, new, new customer um, it's going to be a, lo- a lower margin customer for us, but we believe in the size of the market opportunity. Um, and we want to support you because we align with the values. Like we believe in this mission to make healthy living accessible. And you know, these brands for decades have been entirely reliant on channels like Whole Foods, uh, really to- the, ch- the channel of Whole Foods, mm-hmm. um, which is at a price point or has historically been at a price point that is maybe for the top 5% of, Amer- of disposable income uh, earners. So what and kind of discount are you targeting? 25, relative- to, 25 to 50% off. 
Um, so we, we, Relative to Whole Foods. and we don't, we're not even thinking about Whole Foods, honestly. Right. Like, it's like we get Whole Foods shoppers yeah. who are affluent and still want to save money mm-hmm. and they want the convenience and they like the values. But that's still but, your rule of thumb on what, what, but that's like, what, a, what you define as accessible. We, we define as accessible being at or below the price of the conventional equivalent product. Okay. So we're more interested in someone who's been uh, shopping at okay. Kroger or Ralph's or even Walmart. Right. Or like Target for, is a perfect example than the person who's been shopping at Whole Foods. Yep. Again, rich people want to save money too. Rich, A lot of people that shop at Whole Foods have shopped there because they care about the values and, they, and there's been trust historically. A lot of them are moving over to Thrive. But the big market opportunity and the opportunity for impact is actually to get the tens of millions of American households that – want to live this lifestyle but can't afford it so like an annie's mac and cheese you would target to sell that the same price as a craft mac and cheese That's exactly right that, we want to sell exactly? kind bars for the price of a snickers bar we want non-toxic laundry detergent for the price of tide mm-hmm. was there a you, you mentioned before that you know similar to influencers sort of the initial couple of brands really tipped the scale in your favor yeah. was there a brand in particular that sort of gave you know gave people sort of the uh you know the confidence to actually sign on there, uh, you know, Nativa was one. Uh-huh. John Rulak was a big supporter early mm-hmm. on. Um, Who's the founder of is, the founder is of Nativa? The, the founder mm-hmm. of Nativa. Um, you know, uh, we don't sell honest tea, but like Seth Goldman wrote a check uh, mm-hmm. very early on. I, you know, his his partner Barry. Uh, the there were there were a lot of them. Yeah. Honestly, like the. Um, uh, uh, I, I would I would I would fail to mention somebody like honestly it was it was so fast and it was so surprising to us because we thought there was gonna be pushback and there really wasn't any gotcha um, and we were um, we were just re- we were really really fortunate that way and I think just to like draw a kind of trend and maybe a lesson learned for other entrepreneurs you know these processes are not linear right it's not like a steady march to success right. You, you, it feels like you're hitting your head against the brick wall, but you're actually, you know, structurally affecting it. And all of a sudden <laughs> everything crumbles, mm-hmm. right? Terrible analogy, but you get the idea. No, that's good. That happened multiple times for us where it was like, we got the right person on the right seat mm-hmm. and all of a sudden looked at things a little bit differently and, you know, all, you know, and things just worked. And again, I think for us, like Gennar and I are both pretty scrappy entrepreneurs. Uh, one of our, we have four company values, but one of them is tenacity mm-hmm. and just the willingness to just keep at it, keep at it. Like there's like, there's going to be failure where we couldn't figure out the merchandising. We found Jeremiah. We couldn't figure out the brand. We found Kate. We couldn't figure out technology. We found Sasha. And then even on the time, and just as the dominoes fell with the brands and with the influencers, the same thing happened on the talent side. So once you, you know, talent begins talent, mm-hmm. we've had the good fortune of attracting people that care about the mission. We've also had the good fortune of getting that early core of very, very like top a players mm-hmm. and a's higher a's right and so we've uh we, we've just we've seen those kind of positive feedback loops across the business so when you were early on in, in order to attract sort of a level talent did you guys were you comfortable spending more or is it more just the mission itself that actually attracted these people we, we couldn't afford to spend more from a cash standpoint i would say the two things for us were you know really painting a vision and a mission that people believed in um i think um you know the the bet that we're making on the the market opportunity from the consumer side is that consumers are becoming conscious, right? That they, and it's not just about getting healthy for themselves. It's about making the right decision for the environment. It's about supporting supply chains that are ethical. Um, and that same phenomenon is happening in where people want to spend their time, right? Mm-hmm. They want to vote with their dollars when they're consuming, and with the, with the place that they're working, they want it to be aligned with who they are. And I think that's you know the case for millennials, but I I, I consider millennials a mindset. Right. Mm-hmm. Like we have 
our our shopper is anywhere from twenty to we have twenty some percent of our our our, uh, our members are actually over the age of fifty, mm-hmm. but they all have that mindset. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I think we were able to sell the vision, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then we were also generous with equity, you know, I mean, that, uh, and that, that got baked in the company very early. Like we made that decision with, as co-founders, right. And then, um, um, and, and it was the best decision that we ever made. Gunnar was very generous with me. Mm-hmm. We were very generous, generous with Sasha. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we just, we, we made sure that the people that were in there early are going to do really well. Um, and then we continued that, right? So, so you launched great. in November of that year. You're running on the just slightly over a million that you raised. Yeah. When was did you? Was there another big raise after that that continued so, to drive the scaling of the business? That's where things got really interesting. So we raised thirty million dollars. Um, At what point? In uh, July, I believe, of 2015. Okay. Um, and at that point, we were already approaching a, I think, thirty to forty million dollar run rate. So, you know, the business just exploded. Like our, the core hypothesis was just, was absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we're so smart. It's just, it was like hiding in plain sight. Like people want to get healthy. All people, mm-hmm. or a lot of people, right? Not, not just people in New York, SF and, and, and LA. And, you know, pretty much from day one, it was just like the floodgates open. Our biggest challenge was scaling operations, right? So there's another, another story, right? We brought in a, um, I had to go hire a VP of fulfillment three months in because we were turning our warehouse, which was actually the center of our office. <laughs> we had since moved to office. We had 6,000 so square feet. you're not in the church anymore. We're not yeah. in the church. We're in like a converted garage uh, in Culver City on yep. Jefferson. We had, uh, we, had a, we had it all racked and binned. Within two weeks, we had to put uh, storage uh, containers in the driveway, which we also racked and binned. Uh, like it was absolute pandemonium. Like we couldn't, we couldn't, we had like boxes piled up in the back. Uh, we started a fire one day. It was just like crazy. Um, you're back there packing boxes. I was back there packing boxes. Yeah. We'd work during the day and then we'd go, you know, pack it, pack at night. Yeah. Um, and you know, again, like very sorcerer's apprentice, no real idea what we're doing. Um, and, uh, and I remember putting a job posting out for VP of operations and got this response literally within two hours. Uh, and like a friend of mine, I think had put it out to the Sloan, Sloan, uh, Sloan school, uh, list and got this response from this guy, John Winkles. He hadn't even gone to Sloan, but somehow had been right. forwarded to him. Uh, he was at Kroger. Uh, he's built, uh, he's spent, I think, 17 years or 20 years there. Um, built multi, multi-million square foot warehouse, warehouse builds, um, dozens of them. Um, he is passionate about sustainability. He had done Leeds Gold certified facilities, like Baylor installs, zero waste stuff. Uh, and I was like reading this guy's letter where he's like saying, <laughs> right. I want to come work for you. I'm like, is this like what th- this can't be true this is right. within hours of launching right. the launching the the um uh the job spec um you know we hired that guy within a week uh John came in and it's early 2015 this is this is early 2015 this is 2 months after we launched right. um within a few more weeks we moved into a 40,000 square foot fulfillment center which at the time felt enormous you know we now have i think about 750,000 square feet across two FCs um and John is still with with the company um, so we were very, very fortunate again to get just incredible talent that was mission aligned and that was willing to like just boots on the ground, roll up their sleeves and, and go. Um, and, you know, ironically, all the, all the VCs that had rejected us initially came, came ro- rolling back. It's, it's funny how that works, right? So, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was very satisfying. I'll say yeah. that. I, um, and the, and what was, what was interesting with that process was, you know, 
you actually, I do, I think you see something about someone when they reject you in terms of the way that they do it. And we had some that were like totally stand up, like straight, straight shooters about why it was respectful. Didn't mean that they had to like sit down with us and spend a bunch of time because you know, they don't have that time. Uh, but very clear about why they were passing. And then you had the people that just didn't respond. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and uh, we ended up raising the money from Graycroft. Uh, Dana Settle is the partner that led the round. And there's a bunch of reasons we we chose them. But one of the biggest was that Dana was, uh, she's like, she actually did relate to the business. She got the brand. She's a mom herself. Um, she's an incredible consumer investor. So had all the right backgrounds. But she also sat there and told us exactly why she wasn't going to invest. And when she came back, she was like, all right, these are the things that you guys have proven right that I was wrong about. And, mm-hmm. and, and these are the things that I wanted to see proven. And you've done that. And we want to lead the round. And they were, um, you know, I think value-aligned, mission-aligned, um, and have been great partners. So um, we've been very fortunate with our investors as well. I think setting the template with Greg Croft leading the Series A was fantastic. And then, you know, we raised $111 million Series B about a year later. Uh, from a group called Invis out of New York, uh, who's been equally incredible. Yeah, they're Blue uh, Buffalo. And- just sold Blue Buffalo to General Mills. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a really unique platform because they're a, they have a single LP. Uh, right. They haven't raised money since the 1980s, like literally raised money once. They've been extraordinarily successful. Um, but they are uh, very long-term investors. It's an evergreen fund, so they don't have a, time, they don't have a timeline. Um, and they're, uh, they're also salt-of-the-earth people, like mm-hmm. really like humble, straight-shooting, uh, and passionate about building value. Um, so we just really clicked with them personally and raised more money than we, than we thought we should at the time. Uh, we've made unorthodox decisions in the business actually since then, largely at their urging to mm-hmm. really think long-term. And, um, you know, one of the best decisions again, that we, so that was summer business. 16, that was summer of 16. Got it. And that so was the were, last fundraise. So what were some of these unorthodox decisions that, that you guys have, that you've referred to that you've made? Mostly just investments in the long term, honestly. You know, I think that we uh, – one of the challenges in the first two years of the business is that we were, we were growing so fast and the business was so nascent and there was so little that was foundationally set up that it was a little bit of just trying to keep our head above water, right? And we were, we were fortunate to get in great people. But even with great people, you don't have time. Like, like building out a fulfillment center is not something that you can do exponentially, oh, right? Yeah. Right. And, and um, like building the right tech stack, you know, we had to, we had to replatform our entire site. Uh, we had to, uh, we had to launch an ERP. We didn't have an ERP. We were ordering off Excel spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to uh, massively improve our and customize our warehouse management system. Um, so there's a lot of like systems and process stuff um, that, that had to, that we had to invest in. Uh, there's also investments in like w- really thinking strategically about what's the future of this space and what kind of business do we want to be, mm-hmm. right? You know, you, you can have successful gyms, right, where their members are uh, renewing every month, but they never come to the gym, right? Those people are not net promoters. Mm-hmm. You're not delivering value to those people. They're just sort of like forgetting about it. You can build a membership company like right. that on e-commerce. A lot of companies have tried for mm-hmm. a little while, and I think you can have – you know, you can get cheap, you can acquire cheap customers with a fast payback period, but the LTV isn't going to pan out if you want to use the kind of marketing jargon. And I think for us, ultimately, we stepped back from the business and said, we've done a lot of things right. And we built some real value. We've also, you know, cut some corners and made some mistakes, Mm -hmm. some of which was because we just didn't have any, didn't have the experience. And some of which is we were just moving too fast. And I think what Invis really uh, urged us to do and did with us was to sit down and say, 
what are our goals over the next four to five years? Like we hadn't like literally for those two years of just craziness, we right. hadn't thought more than a quarter. And usually we were, we were just thinking like the day of almost, right. right? Um, by, by necessity. And when you have a lot of money on the balance sheet and you have a long-term partner, you can actually step back. And we were worried that that would be distortionary in a bad way, that mm-hmm. it would sort of like get us lackadaisical right, right. or you start like throwing big parties. Yeah, That's right. not our style. It's certainly, <laughs> certainly not Invis's style. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Jay-Z was at your, uh, your Christmas party, no? <laughs> nope. Not yet. Not yet. Um, you know, like, you know, I, I fly coach. I always will fly coach. Like that's sort of, that's, and we're, we will, we want to do great things for our members. Mm-hmm. It's not about creating a culture of, of excess. Right. Obviously it's, it's just not, it's not where our values are. Um, but, uh, but that exercise was super, super formative for us of saying like, w- what kind of business are we trying to build? What is it going to take to actually solve the problem? Like, if we want to achieve our mission, what do we have to do? And what we decided is we have to become the market leader. We have to actually fill the, va- the vacuum that, that we felt at the time, and I think is even more so true now, as Whole Foods is becoming you know, less, less of the leader. Um, I think under Amazon, they're going to become more utilitarian. Like, who's going to stand up and take the baton and say, we stand for the values of the natural and organic movement, and we're committed to making healthy living as a lifestyle accessible to everyone? Um, and so some of the investments that we made as a result of that were, for example, building our own brand, mm-hmm. right? We'd been entirely third party up to that point. 2016, we launched, I think about 50 SKUs, almost every one of them shot to the top of the category. We have incredible access to data, obviously on site to see What's which, moving. which, which products to launch. Um, and then we had Jeremiah who's mm-hmm. like our, our secret weapon. Right. So we've got 350 SKUs now on the private label side. Uh, when we launch new SKUs and private label, we actually see their subcategory, like the the it's, the, it's sort of the, the the tide that rises raises all ships. Like mm-hmm. we actually see sales improve for the competitive SKUs too, because uh, it brings so much attention to the category, um, and that's now seventeen percent of our sales. So you know we're investing in our own brand. We started focusing on investing in brands earlier, so really trying to partner. And this wasn't literally financially investing; though we're right. starting to do that too. This was, this was just going in earlier with brands, taking a bet, taking a stand with them, something mm-hmm. I think Whole Foods used to do but does a lot less of now. And mm-hmm. by virtue of just being at the scale they're at, they're at it's, it's harder. Um, but uh, you know, we, we call it moving left on the trend curve. And what we want to be now is not only the place where you can buy natural and organic products, which hopefully are going to increasingly be more available, but the place where you discover new natural and organic brands, where you learn about those brands, you learn about how to use the products, you interact with the influencers who are going to talk about the latest, the latest trends and educate you about them, and really be a full platform for healthy living. And so those have been the investments we've been making, which you know, were really hard to do pre Invis pre, uh, round. So you brought up Amazon. So walk us through kind of what, in the long term, what why a consumer will continue to buy from Thrive versus buying it off, buying it off an Amazon. Yeah, I think it's a different value proposition. Um, to, to start right now, our, our catalog, more than uh, about two-thirds of it, you can't buy on Amazon Prime. Um, the, the second thing I would say is that if you want to replicate the part that you can buy on Amazon uh, and you go, on, you go on Amazon and say there's an average, average basket for us is 14 items, um, you'd be having that come in six or seven boxes over the course of six or seven days. And the first one might get there in one or two days, but the last one, it's, it's right. going to be a, a week out. So do you want to do back to this, like what we talked about with the group buying events, like, is that a feasible way to, to shop for your pantry staples mm-hmm. to get, you know, if these are $5 items coming onesie twosies, um, to say nothing of what is the environmental impact of doing that, yeah. uh, particularly with Amazon shipping with plastic, you know, a bunch right. of virgin plastic in the, in the, um, in the boxes, 
Uh, I think another big difference uh, philosophically is just that we curate. Um, it's not, we're not trying to be an everything store. If you know exactly what you want on Amazon, you search for the SKU number, you can get it. Right. If you want almond butter and you don't know where to start, you're going to get, you know, whatever, 250 SKUs mm-hmm. on Amazon. You, even at Whole Foods, you'd find 40 almond butters. We have five. You know that when you come to Thrive Market, you're not going to find palm oil added. You're not right. going to find salt. You're not going to find sugar. And if you go to our own brand, you have, like, basically, I think, the touchstone for a healthy almond butter. It's made with just almonds. Um, so we try to simplify the process because we have a curated catalog. We tag every product across 140 different metadata categories. So if you're a mom and you're trying to you know, be vegan and your husband wants a ketogenic diet and you have a kid that has a nut allergy and another kid that has uh, you know, is lactose intolerant, imagine trying to shop for that on Amazon. Like it's just a, a nightmare. Exactly. I think you're, you're making a point, a point on assortment, and, curation. And all that stuff is really utilitarian. Yeah. It's just for – for someone who wants to get healthy and wants to buy these products, it's actually a much easier experience on Thrive Market. Mm-hmm. We also, because of the membership, which you know Amazon has its membership, they put that into into the basically subsidized shipping. We put our membership towards uh, towards getting the price lower, mm-hmm. right? So we have we do have better pricing too. But I think the biggest thing is they to, don't price match Thrive. Uh, they can't because it's behind a it's behind a wall. Okay, um, maybe they maybe they figure it out at some point and yeah. they start. But currently, um, you find that it, it's curr- not- currently. I don't think it's fe- like it would be loss leader for them, right. which they you know, Amazon does. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. But it, and it's also less than a third. It's a third of the catalog. Got it. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. But all of those benefits are actually those are utilitarian, and I think we can be a great competitor against Amazon and with a clear different utilitarian value proposition. I actually think the much bigger opportunity is to be the platform for conscious consumers. And that to me that is the mega trend. Like there's well there's another mega trend which is that everyone's moving their purchases online, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to be the beneficiary of that, Amazon's going to be the beneficiary of that. But Amazon's value proposition is purely utility. And what makes Thrive unique and I think where we want to double down and triple down over the next X years is to be that place that you trust. To be that place where you know that every product on it meets certain standards. We're actually the largest seller of exclusively non-GMO food Mm -hmm. offline or on in the country already. Um, And you know the reason that moms come and will buy our private label products at you know shooting to the top of the 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 sale the the sales within category immediately is because they trust how we source. We're transparent with our supply chain. We're transparent with our standards. Um, and, and we've created a relationship and a community around shared values. And I think from our influencers to, you know, our one for one membership to our spread the health donations, which funded a million dollars towards the budget of our, of our gives members last year, um, to our, you know, zero waste from fulfillment centers. We're the first e-commerce platform in the country to go zero waste from our FCs, um, to our carbon neutrality, right? We buy carbon offsets to fully offset our carbon shipping footprint. Like these are things that right now it's still a, a minority of people to care about, um, but more and more people are recognizing that, like, our planet's in peril. Right. Uh, health is at, an ep- is at epidemic levels. And I think for, again, the millennial-minded, um, there's going to be over the next five to ten years tens of millions of people that are going to come online and say, we want to vote with our dollars. And that's where Thrive's going to live. Well, it's been a hugely success- successful journey. I mean, you mentioned, you know, shortly even before your, run- before your, your first major fundraise, you guys were already run-rating $30 million. Yeah. Can you, can you share how what kind of scale you guys are at now? I cannot. I can say we're doing hundreds of millions in sales. That's great. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, it's been a wild ride. You know, we're, we're uh, uh, approaching half a million members and you know, having impact at real scale, though in, the reality is it's still first out of the first inning. You know, to, to achieve our mission, we need to be impacting millions and millions of Americans. 
Right after the break, we'll talk more with our guest, Thrive Market co-founder and CEO, Nick Green. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com and chat with us on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. If you like the show, leave us a review. We love the feedback. And now, back to our episode with Thrive Market co-founder and CEO, Nick Green. So a question that we always ask is, has there been a bet the company moment that you've had to live through? Uh, I mean, choosing to drop our consulting from those building our tech platform and failing at it and hire a CTO uh, and, you know, pay for his value fully. Mm -hmm. That was a bet the company moment. Um, Having to go and switch our our uh, influencer strategy or our, our fundraising strategy from VCs, who mm-hmm. was that was a conventional path to influencers, right. was a bet the company moment. We've had a lot, honestly. No, that's that makes sense. Yeah. Related to that, is there a particular high high moment that stands out in your mind? Just launching, honestly. Like it was like the number of times we thought the whole thing was going to come crashing down before we even got to the starting line. Like the day that the company that we launched. You know, we didn't know how hard it was going to be from that point forward, uh, despite having, you know, it's like as an entrepreneur, it's kind of Groundhog Day. You're like experiencing the same things over again and <laughs> right. still subjecting yourself to right. it. Right. We knew it was going to be hard afterwards. But at that point, I remember just feeling like we had arrived and it was a huge accomplishment. Conversely, is there a particular low point? I mean, failing. To, uh, there's so many low points, right? It's a, you guys know how it is, too. It's a, it's a total roller coaster, like failing to. Uh, failing to uh, to build the to build the tech platform, wasting hundreds of thousands of dollars of our own money, failing to fundraise. Um, you know, as the as a as a co-founder, you're all in on something, and every one of those things you take personally, right? Right? You internalize it. So, um, you know, that's that's the journey, though. It's a lot of lot of highs and a lot of lows. So, at this point, what's keeping you up at night? Again, so many things. Right, I, I worry. I worry about every <laughs> single thing. I'm still the type A neurotic, anal retentive <laughs> right. person that I was in high school, um, and that's again, it's part of being a founder, right? Like, and I think in my first business, I felt like, God, what's wrong with me, right? I'm like, this is my, I'm, I'm neurotic, which might be true, but, but I think it's part of loving what you're building, and it's like, you know, I have, I have a child now, and uh, not, it's, there's a lot of difference between a business and a child, but. Um, you're connect like I'm connected to my daughter in a way I'm with no other human being and the connection that an entrepreneur has to their business like it's like no hired gun is going to feel that way and so yeah you, you like uh, you feel every single bump in the road so Robin one of the most interesting parts of this story is the fact that this wasn't an overnight success the money didn't just come flying in from investors rather they had to go about it in a unique way. And they raised capital from 100 online social media influencers. And when we asked the question, how did you get consumers to get to come to the Thrive website when you, you, know, when you got started? Well, these 100 investors, through their social following, got a wave of consumers to flock to Thrive Market. And that's truly unique. You know, that was the favorite part uh, for me of, of this whole story as well is it's this recurring theme of how entrepreneurs deal with failure. Um, in this case, you know, they were out there, they had this great idea and, you know, institutional investors just weren't there. So what did they do? They figured out another way in order to make something great. And one more thing, special shout out to Nick Green's daughter for her first birthday. Well, when you're not neurotically starting companies, um, <laughs> what what are you doing outside of work? Spending time with my baby. Yeah, uh, my wife and I had our uh, we've been together for 12 years. She's been the greatest supporter of everything that I've ever done, um, and honestly, would not like 
would not have been successful in the first business, would not have had the courage to start the second business if not for her. Uh, we, we finally decided to expand the clan, that's and uh, that's been the most incredible experience. So pretty much all my time off work is, is <laughs> how, uh, how old is baby. your baby? Uh, she turns one uh, this week. Oh, wow. congratulations. Thank you. Nice. Thank you. Congratulations. Yeah. All right. Nick Green, are you ready for our signature game, Rapid Fire 60 Seconds? You ready? I'm ready. All right. The first thing that you read every day is uh, Apple News. What's your favorite movie? Ooh. Lincoln. Your hometown is famous for? Uh, nothing. <laughs> What's your guilty pleasure? Taking a nap on a Sunday. Nice. First car you ever drove? Uh, a Saturn uh, that had manual locks, manual windows, manual transmission, <laughs> uh, and a spoiler. Nice. And you didn't keep it? Runner I up, did. Runner-up name for your business. It didn't make the cut. Shop Tribe. Do you recline on airplanes? Oh, yeah. If you could drink one thing for the rest of your life besides water, what do you choose? Sparkling water. <laughs> what was your last New Year's resolution? I don't do New Year's resolutions. Sure. If you were stranded on an island, you could only bring one thing. What would it be? My phone. What's the last hashtag you used? Never used a hashtag. Where's the next place you'd like to travel? Ah. Bali. Talent you don't have, but wish you did. So many. Charisma. <laughs> What's your most hated food? Most hated food. Uh, Ronyans. If you could be any pro athlete, who would you be? Michael Jordan. Favorite TV show ever? Billions. Oh, it's oh, a good show. I'm really into that one, too. It's a great show. Lastly, for aspiring entrepreneurs, what advice do you have for them? Just be tenacious. It's, it's, hard, it's hard for everyone. Everyone second guesses themselves. Everyone confronts failure. Um, you will feel like a failure more often than not. The lows sometimes feel like they're lower than the highs, but it, it, it is worth it. And, um, and uh, if you keep pushing forward, you break through. Well, Nick Green, SAT extraordinaire, co-founder, Thrive Market. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with Caitlin Smith, founder and CEO of Simple Mills a line of mixes, crackers, and cookies without any refined sugar, unhealthy flours, gluten, or genetically modified ingredients. Caitlin's background in biology and her commitment to a healthier lifestyle jump-started the Simple Mills journey, but she also had a lucky break or two along the way. One of the women I had talked to was in the grocery store, uh, and standing next to her was a man that I had talked to. Uh, and he turns to her and he asks her, what do you think of this brand on the shelf? And she says, I'm thinking about investing in it. Oh, wow. <laughs> and so he calls me up and says, hey, I want exclusive rights to take a look at this deal for the next week. That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.